May it please the court, Steve Benedetto on behalf of the People's Law Forum for the plaintiff appellants, Roland Harris, Jessica Perez, and Rodessa White on behalf of her two minor children, survivors of Jacob Harris, who's deceased. I'll reserve three minutes and do my best to track my own time. Jacob Harris was 19 years old when a weapon of war, a stun grenade, went off feet from him in his vehicle. He ran, and three seconds later, he'd been shot in the back by an AR-15 multiple times and lied on the ground bleeding out. Three rulings of the district court deprived his family and his survivors of the ability to present that case to a jury. Those three, in order, were the denial, the improper denial, of leave to amend a complaint that had never been before amended, that the court acknowledged could be remedied by amendment, and denied leave anyway. The dismissal of wrongful death claims against the municipal employer, the city of Phoenix, based on an application of Arizona law that was far beyond the original case where it originated, Ryan v. Napier, and the willful departure of this court's instruction that in cases involving lethal use of force by police officers, where the victim is deceased, the trial court is obligated to vet the evidence and consider the officer's testimony and claims in light of the entire evidence, which we saw in this case. Can I ask you at the outset to focus for me on the 1983 claims, not the state law claims, and what your contention is on appeal? Your brief says that you fault the district court for not allowing you to amend to assert a 14th Amendment liberty claim, which I think we could call the loss of consortium claim, and to amend to better allege your Napier claim. Put the Napier claim aside for a second. Did you really mean on appeal not to also suggest that you should have been allowed leave to amend to assert a 14th Amendment excessive force claim? No, Your Honor. Your brief says that, and I'm not going to hold you to it. And I apologize for any confusion in the brief. Okay, so let me then focus on the amendment issue, because this is troublesome, I think, both ways in the case. The judge sets a timeline for amending the complaint. You are not then representing the Jacobs family, the Harris family. But the timeline passes, and previous counsel does nothing to move to amend. You come in right after that deadline, and you ask the judge several times to extend the time for discovery, and the judge is quite agreeable, extends the time for discovery. Discovery ends. Dispositive motions are filed by the city defendants, if you will. And then for the first time, you ask to amend the complaint. You're obviously aware, I don't mean you personally, but your side of the case, is obviously aware of the deadline to amend the complaint, but have done nothing up to that point until after it's nine months past the time to do so, to try to do so. I think those are just the facts. And I think under that circumstance, our case law says we're no longer operating under Rule 15's liberal amendment policy, but rather under good faith, 
good cause under Rule 16. Assuming all that's right, tell me why the judge erred in finding that you hadn't demonstrated good cause. Because it seems to me the 1983 claims can't proceed absent an amendment. There was no real assertion of loss of consortium in the original complaint, and we don't have a personal representative in the original complaint. So those claims rise or fall on the ability to amend. Tell me why there wasn't good cause in this case. Your Honor, in terms of the lack of good cause, I don't think we proffered that argument that there wasn't good cause, excuse me, that there was good cause to amend, other than the fact that the defendant did not file their motion for judgment on the pleadings. And bear in mind, this was not a motion for summary judgment, which is what we saw in the Mammoth Recreations case. Yeah, but isn't it functional equivalent? I mean, what he's saying, what the defendant is saying is, taking all the facts in the light most favorable to you, you still can't win because there's no evidence of loss of consortium and there's no evidence of the appointment of a personal representative. So I'm not sure it makes, the form of the motion makes much difference. You wouldn't be in any different situation had this been included in a motion for summary judgment. I think where we would be in a different situation, Your Honor, is that the motion for judgment on the pleadings was premised on the idea that these complaints, as the court points out, were deficiently pled. That the, in terms of the estate issue, that's not an issue on appeal. But the familial... Why is it not an issue on appeal? Because you can't assert the excessive force claim on behalf of the decedent in the absence of a personal representative, right? I apologize, Your Honor. I'm afraid I may have taken us down a diversionary lane by misunderstanding the court's original question. We are not asserting a Fourth or Fourteenth Amendment claim for excessive force. That's what I was asking. On behalf of the estate. So all we're worried about on the 1983 side is the loss of consortium claim. That's correct. Thank you for, that's helpful. My apologies for the confusion on that. And I think to the extent we are talking about this issue, I think this is an important point on this particular issue. Because the, on this issue, we have a complaint that's filed, that's unamended. In response, of course, a defendant has options. They can file a motion to dismiss. They can file a motion for more definite statement. That does not happen. There is no indication that the defendant believes this is deficiently pled until there's a motion for judgment. Well, it is in there, to be fair to them, it's in their answer. Among their affirmative defenses, they seem to outline the very deficiencies that eventually lead the judge to dismiss them. Sure. And that's fair, Your Honor. And as we know, there are a whole lot of affirmative defenses that are alleged as well beyond, you know, kind of form defenses. I think the Mammoth Recreations case is instructive on this point. Because in that case, where the court did ultimately deny leave for lack of good cause, the Ninth Circuit said, hey, we've got a case here where there was deficient pleading. And that affirmative answer, the affirmative defenses were alleged in the answer. And they were also dictated and spelled out in interrogatory responses. And the deficiency was further set forth in a letter from counsel. And here's the key point. That deficiency involved a completely separate defendant. The Mammoth Recreations case, the defendants were saying, we're not the proper defendant. We're mere shareholders in the proper corporate defendant. There's no substitution of parties here. There's just a clarification of a lack of clarity of claims, of which the plaintiff is not on affirmative notice other than what the court just pointed out. The affirmative answer and, excuse me, the affirmative defenses set forth and a number of affirmative defenses in the answer until this motion for judgment on the pleadings is filed. And discovery was still open at that point. 
In fact, no depositions had yet occurred at that point. So this is where we see a distinction between the current matter and that mammoth case on which the district court relied. I know you don't want to spend all your time on the motion to amend, so let me ask a question that might segue you into the other parts of the case. There's a bunch of, there's a state law wrongful death claim on which the district court grants summary judgment. Is the standard for the state law claim, because in order to show loss of consortium, you'd have to show excessive force or something, some constitutional violation. Is the standard for the state law wrongful death claim different, greater, lesser than what you'd have to show to show a constitutional violation? It is lesser because we're not going to be dealing with the same level of a qualified immunity defense. Qualified immunity. Right, but the court never got to qualified immunity. Right. And you agree if we were to rule in your favor, the court would have to address qualified immunity. That's correct. So if it's lesser, is there a preclusive effect if they're affirmed? If it's affirmed on the district court's summary judgment on the state law side with respect to your 1983 claim? In other words, if you couldn't even prove enough to show the lesser burden of the state law claim, don't you necessarily lose on the 1983 claim? I think it would depend on how the court would affirm the ruling on the state law claim, which of course we would urge against. No, no, what I'm trying to figure out is the issue. I know the district court said it wasn't futile, but it seems to me if you can't establish, if you fail on the state law claims and they don't require, they require a lesser level of proof than the 1983 claim, I'm not sure how you establish the constitutional violation that would give rise to the consortium claim. So that's a messy question, but see if you can unpack it. I think I see where you're headed with this, your honor, and I think these are distinct issues. The basis for the dismissal of the state law claim, municipal liability state law claim against the city is essentially a procedural. That's the nappier part. So again, let me, help me here. There was also a wrongful death claim against the officers. Correct. You're not challenging the ruling on that on appeal, you are. We are challenging. That's the one I'm focusing on. So my apologies, I'm following you now. So when we're talking about the wrongful death claim, the state law claim against the officers individually, we're talking about a negligence and gross negligence claim that expands far beyond the intentional act. When we're talking about 1983, I think the case law is fairly clear. We're really limited on the intentional act. What were the circumstances surrounding the shooting? When we're talking about state law wrongful death, we are now in a completely different atmosphere. We're considering things like the plan that led to this, the number of other vehicles and the number of other people involved in this planning. Who was involved in deciding that for a group of teenagers who they were watching all day long at their homes, in their vehicles, that they were going to allow them to rob a fast food restaurant, allow the robbery to be preceded and carried out, follow that vehicle for eight minutes, and then deploy this grappler device. Essentially, the argument there is the intentional use of force was a reasonably foreseeable outcome of the gross negligence of the plan itself, which extends beyond Officer Burtz by himself. I told you I'd remind you as you were getting down towards the end of your time. You can continue, but if you want to say for the rest of rebuttal, that's... Sorry, can I ask one quick question? On the motion to amend, you rely on eminence and Harris, 
But both, neither of those cases deal with Rule 16. Is that correct? And That's correct. They're, they're both Rule 15 cases, Your Honor. So, and we're definitely in Rule 16 land. We are in Rule 16 land to the extent that this, this deadline was set. Okay. Um, and uh, our position is the fact that a motion for judgment on the pleadings is filed takes this out of Rule 16 land because that's essentially the good cause. Um, when we're looking at Rule 16, it's a failure. Why are we failing to amend? What's the good cause for an earlier failure? The good cause is there was never any challenge to the initial pleading. I see. Okay, thank you. Thank you. May it please the court, Christina Retz on behalf of Officer Burks and the City of Phoenix. I want to go directly toward the court's several questions. And we agree that first, this is Rule 16 that applies first because of the procedural history of this case. And the fact that the defendants did not lie in wait as suggested by the plaintiff and failed to bring the deficiencies to their attention. It was set forth in the case management report. It was set forth in the answer. And then in the record are my communications to counsel identifying the deficiencies, including the additional problems that we were having in the case with obtaining discovery responses from the plaintiffs. The only reason why discovery was ever extended for the multiple times it was is because we were not getting releases. We had sent discovery that was pending for at once a year, and we're not getting any responses. We sent our well, let me Let me ask this question in a non-accusatory way, because I, I don't think the record demonstrates that you all did anything, your side of the case did anything wrong. It does seem to demonstrate that a combination of lawyers neglected to seek uh, leave to amend the complaint at a point at which it almost surely would have been granted, which is to say before the deadline. Uh, should should the plaintiff really suffer because of those mistakes? Well, Your Honor, I think it, there was plenty of opportunity to do so. Oh, see, I agree. In, I agree. I said they were mistakes, so I'm not. So I'm not. I'm, I'm. I'm assuming that that diligent counsel, and I'm not blaming anybody here, should have moved to amend the complaint before the deadline expired, or at least sought to extend the deadline. Uh, no one did, but. With respect to the 1983 claim, that's the only one I'm focusing on at the moment, it would have been a loss of consortium claim, and it seems obvious that the survivors of the decedent lost consortium. <laughs> so it, it doesn't add a new issue to the case. It doesn't. It's not really focused on anything you're not already trying, which is the legality of the, the stop and the shooting and everything else. So why under those circumstances shouldn't a district judge, whether it's a good cause standard or some other standard, allow them to amend the complaint and pursue that claim? Under the Foman factors, if we turn to Rule 15, we would look at undue delay and prejudice in the timing. We would also look to futility. Well, what's the, what, I guess I was focusing on the prejudice. Yes. How, I mean, obviously you won and you don't want to have to go back, but at the time that the motion was denied, what prejudice would have accrued to your side of the case had the, I keep calling it the loss of consortium claim, but you know what I mean, the 14th Amendment yes. liberty claim had been allowed to be amended just to provide facts that said, here are the survivors and they've lost the companionship and 
affection, et cetera, of the, of the decedent. Well, you're talking about a completely different standard for the 14th Amendment claim, the purpose to harm standard that would be applicable. So you're talking about a, a very heightened standard right. that would it apply. Might, it might well fail on its merits, but you're already defending against really an argument of purposeful harm in the state law, on the state law side. And for whatever reason, the judge thought that amendment wouldn't be futile. I'm not sure he was right, but he didn't. He didn't deny it on that basis. So I'm just not sure what additional burden it would have put on you. They still would have had to show the constitutional violation. It's essentially the same set of facts you're trying on the state law side. Um, Why would you be prejudiced? Because our experts had already gone through the case and developed the case without that heightened standard. The case had been pending for a significant period of time, years at that point. Uh, My client had expended my clients had expended an extreme amount of money in in putting forth um, tons of evidence regarding the prior crimes, everything at issue, and there was no narrowing whatsoever. But in any event, Your Honor, I think this the the question that you asked about the preclusive effect for the well, but you see, if the judge had held on that, I don't, I'm not sure we should get to there in the first instance. And the, the trial judge might well say, okay, now I find it to be futile. Now that I've looked at the amended complaint, it's futile. Um, and But it seems to me that since the standard for the loss of consortium claim is that the defendants intentionally deprived you of loss of consortium, all the defenses you were making on the wrongful death side were, were directly applicable to that claim, were they not? But you add a subjective standard to the 14th Amendment purpose to harm. It's a subjective standard of... Un, being unrelated to the legitimate needs of law enforcement. So you're not going on merely an objective standard for the objective reasonableness for the Fourth Amendment. You are stepping up to a next layer to say that that action had to have been unrelated to that's the an legitimate. Adi- that's an additional burden for the plaintiff. With additional discovery. Right. Well, it's an additional burden for the plaintiff. He wasn't asking for more discovery. Uh, I mean, he had to deal with it then on whatever evidence he had. He might not have had enough evidence to survive summary judgment, but I'm having a little difficulty figuring out why it's an additional burden on you. Um, it's a higher burden on him. I mean, the judge found he couldn't meet the burden to show wrongful death. Uh, but if, if the but, plaintiff had the so the that ruling came before the summary judgment. I, on the I understand. I understand. I'm just trying. In my mind. It, you know, it wouldn't have put much of a burden on you. The judge, you could have addressed them all in the summary judgment. Had you done so, we'd had a very different case on appeal. But what we have on appeal is a procedural ruling, maybe correct, that prevents the defendant from, the plaintiff, from making the argument he wants to make. And that's what, that's what troubles me a little bit. And, Your Honor, I would turn to, turn to the harmless error portion of this, is that if we look at the facts that were developed, this is ultimately harmless because the facts in the ruling of the court would be preclusive for the 14th Amendment claim. Because if under the state statute the conduct is justified, it cannot meet the purpose to harm unrelated to legitimate law enforcement objectives. So while if you were to find a technical violation there, as we walk this through to the outcome, it's preclusive. Uh, it. It Can resolves I, that. Was, was there an amended complaint submitted? I didn't see one. 
There was an amended complaint submitted, and I believe actually the amended complaint would have introduced further errors because the amended complaint did not even allege an assault and battery committed by Officer Burks. I don't have that ER site. If not, don't worry about it. I'll find it. But I guess, once again, we're not dealing with the sufficiency of the amended complaint, right? At least the trial judge didn't. He didn't say, okay, I've looked at your amended complaint. It's not sufficient to state a claim or it's not sufficient to meet the issue raised in the motion for judgment on the pleadings, so I won't let you file it. To the contrary, he said, I think you could amend. Only for the 14th Amendment. For the 14th Amendment, yes. Not for the other, for the futility. Yeah, that's right. But he said, I think you could amend to correct that, but you're too late, right? And if we walk through, I think that's where we come to the next step in the analysis that now we have a ruling on summary judgment on the state law claims that preclude this finding of purpose to harm. And I would note that if you look through Ninth Circuit case law, Daly v. City of Phoenix, for an example, is that even if there is a question of fact on whether use of force was permissible under the Fourth Amendment, courts have routinely disposed of the 14th Amendment claims, even with that question of fact, showing that heightened level in addition. I do also want to address an argument that was raised for the first time in the reply brief. It was not submitted below to the district court. It was not part of the district court's analysis. So the first time ever showing up in the reply brief was this statutory construction argument for the state law claims of justification, where the plaintiffs tried to replace the plain language of the statute with other words. To argue that it was absolutely required to replace the officer in the statute, it says the officer, it does not say a officer, it says the, with a requirement that every single officer under the circumstances in the world, every single officer would have had to believe that the force was justified, which is not in accord with rules of statutory construction. There is no case law cited for that point. It was waived by not being addressed by the district court below. Can I ask a question about the Napier issue? And so now it seems like they're alleging that the intentional acts was the stop, you know, the plan of stopping with the grappler and the flashbangs, and that was all intentional, and then the death was reasonably foreseeable from that. What's wrong with that argument? Because Napier only allows, the way that they're arguing is it relative to the city and the respondeat superior claim. And the city's respondeat superior was tied to Officer Burtz and Officer Norman, who has since been dismissed for firing and missing entirely. And it is related only to the intentional use of force. They're arguing that the deployment of the grappler and the plan was a negligent plan, which under Ryan v. Napier, there is very clear language that says that the officer's evaluation of whether to use force, the plan put in place, does not state a claim under Ryan v. Napier. And this was not something that was ever alleged during the case. So to the extent that they're alleging an intentional scheme to put the decedent in the circumstance where he ended up getting shot, under Ryan v. Napier, wouldn't they also have to allege that the city knew of that intentional scheme? In other words, I think when you deal with intentional schemes, it's not enough that the city be negligent. 
the city has to have prior knowledge of the intentional scheme. Of propensity. Of the propensity, propensity of the officers. Of the propensity to engage in that intentional scheme. Exactly. And so it, it almost cuts the other way. In other words, when they were make, if they were making a negligence claim, then they could argue that the city was negligent for not – for allowing the officers to do these sorts of things. I understand you have other defenses to that, but to the extent it's an intentional an intentional act claim, then their burden under Napier is to show that the city had the propensity, knew that these officers had the propensity to do this sort of thing. And this is the first grappler deployment that happened on the police force, which actually successfully stopped this vehicle um, and presented, prevented a police pursuit. So I don't think under the facts you could even get there because of the fact that this this tool is designed to keep individuals from fleeing. It's designed to protect the community. It worked perfectly. Stop the vehicle, and the flashbang was designed as a de-escalation tool. It was designed to keep the occupants in the vehicle, and it successfully did keep three of the occupants in the vehicle. A different choice was made by Mr. Harris, a different choice to flee. Can I ask you a question? And I know because we ask questions, counsel doesn't always have the ability to address something, and perhaps he can address this on rebuttal. Um, you, the plaintiff has an expert who says, and there was no doubt in this record that, that Mr. Harris left the car and was shot at some point after he left the car. The officers testify about what they thought happened. The other side has an expert that says, well, they couldn't have seen that because of the smoke and the flashbacks. Let's assume for a moment that it is contested about what they could have seen and couldn't seen. And couldn't have seen at that point. What effect does that dispute have on the wrongful death claim? I don't think it has any effect, Your Honor, because we still have a fleeing felon who, under the last subsection of the statute, the officers had a reasonable belief that he would endanger the safety of the community based upon the 27-odd prior armed robberies, aggravated assaults, and the 28th that Officer Burst was aware of occurring on video in front of him. So it's that the, the statute creates a presumption of reasonableness under those circumstances, right? Well, the two separate statutes, first 12716 creates a presumption of reasonableness, and then you have to look at the actual language of the statute of 13409, which has several different subsections right. that apply. But, but I guess I'm trying to figure out whether or not there was any evidence at the summary judgment stage, here we're not dealing with pleading, that that could be viewed as rebutting whatever presumption of reasonableness the statute gives rise to. I don't see any evidence, Your Honor. We have a gun that was photographed in the back of Mr. Harris's waistband. The police report in the record documents that surveillance saw it in the back of his waistband. We have video of the suspects going into the Whataburger armed. We have the guilty pleas that they are armed when they go into the Whataburger uh, the gun has Mr. Harris's DNA on it. The gun or an object, if you're going to not even admit that it's a gun, flies from his hand in the video. The object. Is that a disputed fact? You clearly see something flying from his hand in the video. The plaintiff is disputing that. I don't believe there's any reasonable way to dispute that based upon the photographs of the gun. And, that, and the, the gun was found where that object landed. Yes, and multiple officers in the record stated that as they were trying to apprehend um, Mr. Harris, they saw the gun as well. They saw it sitting in there, and the air unit observer said he saw what he believed to be a gun. But yeah, regardless... So I'm, I'm saying let's assume there's a fact dispute about what they could have seen. Um, 
your view is that that really doesn't matter. Exactly. I could imagine a different set of facts. For example, where there was a witness who said that the decedent had placed the gun on the ground and put his hands up in the air. And so I'm trying to figure out whether there's anything in this record that might create a fact issue as leading in that direction. No, Your Honor. And in fact, I just want to make the clear point that there's been a lot of back and forth about whether he was turning back, what was happening. But as you watch the video and you look at the record as to how close Officer Birch's vehicle was, he is directly in the line of that vehicle. These are feet away. So the video in the respect of the floor from 11,000 feet distorts the distance. And right behind Officer Birch's... Judge Gould, I think, had a question. Counsel, I have a couple of questions for counsel. First of all, on the state law claims, does the state statute make absolutely clear that the officer could use deadly force against a fleeing felon? Yes, Your Honor, it does. And that is the second... That is subsection... Several of them do under subsection 2A, has committed, attempted to commit, is committing, or attempted to commit a felony involving the threatened use of a deadly weapon, is attempting to escape by use of a deadly weapon, or subsection C, through past or present conduct of the person, which is known by the police officer that the person is likely to endanger human life or inflict serious bodily harm to another. Thanks, counsel. I tend to... My analysis was similar to that, that the state law claim seems like it can be dismissed and it's sort of open and shut. But on the federal law claim about excessive force, I don't really understand why the district court dismissed that with prejudice. In your honor, the issue of dismissal of the Fourth Amendment claim was specifically for the lack of having a personal representative withstanding to advance that claim. And the plaintiffs are now not objecting to the dismissal of the Fourth Amendment claim. They simply are objecting to the dismissal of the purposed harm 14th Amendment claim. Okay, thank you. We've taken you over. I'm over time. Once again, and I thank you for the argument. Well, let's put four minutes on the clock because this is an important case and give Mr. Benedetto sufficient time to do rebuttal. Thank you for that, your honor. One thing I do want to address regarding Judge Gould's last question to defense counsel. And the idea of this being open and shut, I agree if this were a qualified immunity question analyzed under qualified immunity principles, then the state law issue of justification might well be open and shut. But it's not. The justification statute specifically has this requirement of whether the act is necessary. And we are not arguing that every police officer on the face of the planet must agree it's necessary. If the police officer is unreasonable in believing that the lethal force is necessary, then his opinion doesn't count. It has to be the belief of a reasonable police officer that the use of deadly force is necessary to affect one of these outcomes. Let me ask you to focus on that because your theory today, and it's in your briefing too, seems to be that 
there was this whole series of events where the police officers didn't act correctly. But if you just focus for a moment on the time that deadly force was used, um, we have we do have a, a fleeing armed felon. Um, why, if we just focus on the use of deadly force as opposed to the grappling and the other stuff, um, why, why under the state law is there a fact question? Uh, a few reasons, Your Honor. First, um, uh, again, there is this question of necessity. So under state law, we are looking at the, the aggregate. The, what the, the officer must right? reasonably believe it's necessary, right? Correct. We, it's, not, it's not us deciding, but the officer's reasonable belief. That's, that's correct. And, and under qualified immunity, necessity is, is a factor to be considered. Uh, under the Biscotti case, it makes that clear. It's something to be considered, but it is not dispositive, whereas under state law, it is dispositive. So we have a couple issues here that are, are highly relevant. One is the volume of the force out to respond to this incident. This was not an isolated officer in the middle of nowhere by himself. Uh, at one point, I think we see uh, something like 18 police vehicles within minutes afterwards. And this is only from the portion of the, the video we can see. We know it's a multi-agency response. Um, so that weighs into it. Uh, one thing that does weigh into it for sure is there is this idea uh, that's simply been asserted by the defense that Mr. Harris had this black Targus gun in his hand because it was photographed. And Judge Bumate, I think you asked about what was the evidence. And the evidence is, counsel says it, um, it's repeated numerous times. And we do have uh, Detective uh, Brett Bundy, who's in the aircraft, telling an officer in his deposition, he repeats this, I see something that came out of the, uh, the person's hand um, it's right by your feet. And we don't have any deposition testimony from that officer saying, I was the person to look down and that was the gun. What we have is a video showing something flying out of a hand and we don't have a crime scene investigator. The person who was a crime scene investigator wasn't made available for deposition. Do you have a deposition. theory on what that what object was if it wasn't the gun? We don't know. Um, we don't know where Jacob Harris's cell phone was found. Mm. Um, it's not a deposition. But we, we, we do know, I don't think it's disputed, that he was seen earlier in the day carrying a firearm? Earlier in the day, there is a, a photo of him with a what appears to be a, a black barrel coming out of his yeah. pants. So the officers would have reasonable cause to believe that he had been armed earlier in the day? I, I would agree with that. And, and we do have DNA evidence that his DNA is on the, on the weapon. Correct. Correct. And, and, and again, he was, there's this photographic evidence of being armed earlier in the day. Um, distinguishing when that DNA got on the gun, we don't have evidence of. But we, we do have this question about whether he was an armed felon fleeing. Uh, we've also got a question of what other possible, possible responses were available to this officer. Uh, according to Officer Burtz's testimony, 1.8 seconds elapsed from the time that door opens and the time Jacob Harris is lying on the ground after being shot. Um, so it's portrayed as this bang-bang situation, but we know uh, leading up to this, there was conversation about what they were going to do. Um, the video might show slightly more than 1.8 seconds, maybe as much as three. But in those three seconds, Officer Burtz claims that he grabbed his assault rifle, observed Jacob Harris exit the vehicle, observed Jacob Harris point the gun at him and hold it up while he was running away, observe a Circle K clerk 635 feet away inside the Circle K working, observed people at the, the parking, uh, at the, uh, the gas pumps, pumping gas, and concluded that he had to use lethal force. I think the totality of, of, of that testimony is something that 
a reasonable jury could disagree with. And that's really what we're talking about here is a summary judgment. Can I ask you, what do you, what do you mean by they, they discussed the plan beforehand? Did they say that we'll shoot him if they flee? Or what are you saying? That, that wasn't discussed. We'll shoot him if, if he, if he flees. Um, what was discussed is we will use the grappler device oh. while they're driving through traffic and we'll deploy the, the, um, the flashbang. And because on, on your Napier claim, you're saying that that was negligent to do that now, but wouldn't deploying the grappler and the flashbang be intentional acts, and so therefore it's still within the intentional use of force? Well, I, I would agree that certainly the, the deployment of the flashbang, the grappler, would be intentional acts. The Napier argument in the state law claim on that issue against the city expands beyond that and further back, because this is the, the context. But you, but you can only impose vicarious liability on the city for the acts done by its employees, mm -hmm. and if they were intentional then don't you have to show under Napier that the city knew of their propensity to do these things? Absolutely. Now, if, I understand are, when you get to the shooting, you, right. might, you have a different argument. But as to the grappling and I, the flashbangs, there's no evidence that this is summary judgment, that the city knew that these officers had a propensity to do grappling or flashbangs or, or even to shoot suspects. No, and I, and I appreciate the, the question, Your Honor, because I think that highlights a, a, a misunderstanding of our argument. We're not arguing that the city is vicariously liable for the intentional acts of using the grappler and deploying the flashbang. The argument is the negligent plan as a whole, not, not just as to these officers um, using this grappler, using the flashbang. These officers were involved in this surveillance operation for hours ahead of time. They were at one point uh, leaving the parking lot near the Whataburger because there were so many police officers around undercover, they didn't want to tip off their presence. This was a multi-hour operation during which a plan was agreed upon that they would execute this fairly high-risk plan to dis disable this vi uh, vehicle by surprise. Um, and our argument is that the, the fatal shooting that happened afterwards was a reasonable foreseeable outcome of that negligent plan. Thank you. You've now gotten to the five John, minutes. So I think you, you tried John, to save at the beginning, but Judge Gould has a question. Yes, I might have a question. On the federal law claim, I'm not really understanding why the defendants should not have an opportunity to amend. And so what I'm wondering is whether we should vacate and remand the decision in part on the federal claim with instructions to dismiss with, with, without prejudice. And, Your Honor, that is that is part of our argument on the, the federal claim is that we believe that it should be remanded because we should have had the opportunity uh, to amend. And, in fact, one point on that, even without an amendment, the original complaint names Roland Harris, Jessica Perez, and Redessa White. It mentions the 14th Amendment. There would be no reason under Arizona law to name multiple plaintiffs. There's only one wrongful death plaintiff under Arizona law. There'd be no reason under a Fourth Amendment excessive force or Fourteenth Amendment excessive force claim to name more than one plaintiff, because only the estate, as we know, can serve as the plaintiff. So I'm trying to figure out, because Judge Gould's question raises one in my mind, and it's like the one I asked before. Put outside all the state law claims for a sec. If you're on the Fourteenth Amendment loss of consortium side, you would have to show a constitutional violation, correct? Correct. Um, but you not, and that constitutional violation, I think, would have to be 
an excessive force claim, would it not? Because that's what led to the loss of consortium. That's correct. But you're not pursuing your excessive force claim, which the judge dismissed with prejudice. So how could you establish your loss of consortium claim? The excessive force claim was dismissed for lack of standing. The argument asserted by the defense, which the judge accepted, was... So your argument, it wasn't dismissed on the merits, but rather for want of a correct plaintiff. Absolutely. That was the basis for dismissal. Judge Gould, any other questions? Well, on that dismissal, should that have been with prejudice or without prejudice? I wish I could stand here before you today, Judge, and tell you that should be without prejudice. Unfortunately, the state of Arizona law at the time and effectively today was such that the late appointed personal representative, we had a personal representative appointed after the two-year deadline, was probably ineffective to make that claim. I don't think anything about the amendment would have changed that late appointed personal representative. And even if it were without prejudice, I don't think that claim could have been salvaged. Okay, thank you. Thank you, counsel, both of you for your arguments and your briefing. I thank counsel before for her flexibility in rescheduling. I thank counsel for the appellant for that. With that, this case will be submitted.